Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Her husband was a member of Congress, ambassador to China, ambassador to the U.N., director of the CIA, vice president, and president of the United States. But who was she? Most of us think of her as a nice old lady who just hovered in the background of George H.W. Bush's career. But Susan Page took a long look at Barbara Bush and came up with a totally different take. In her new book, The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty, Susan points out that Barbara Bush was not only the only first lady who was alive when both her husband and son were president, she was also a strong-willed, outspoken woman who was a strong influence in her husband's career and who ended up breaking with the Republican Party over Donald Trump. Susan, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bill, it's so good to be with you. So when most Americans, I believe, uh, think of Barbara Bush, they think of somebody who's old-fashioned, maybe frumpy, uh, a housewife who didn't play any major role at all in her husband's career. Uh, In researching and writing The Matriarch, is that what you found? That is not what I found. Uh, You know, I think think Americans did look at her and think, oh, what a wonderful grandmother she must be. Uh, And she was a devoted grandmother in a way, but she was also the enforcer. She was a key advisor to her husband and to her son, two U.S. presidents. And she was the matriarch of a remarkable American family. You interviewed her how many times? Well, I've interviewed her many times over the years, but for the purposes of this book, I interviewed her five times during the last six months of her life. Where? In her home? In her home in Houston. Uh, Most of the interviews were in the the living room of their home in Houston. One of them was in a little den, a little TV den next to the living room. Uh, It was just me and her. Usually there was an aide of hers who would sit in a corner of the, the room, and always her two ill-tempered little dogs. (laughs) Uh, Was she ill-tempered herself, or how did she receive you? She was uh, not ill-tempered, and she was wary at first. One of the first things she said was, don't even ask to see my diaries, you can't see them. Uh, But we had one interview that went, I thought, very well, and I asked her for a second, and she agreed to that, and at the end of the second, I asked for a third, (laughs) and so on, and we had five interviews, and in fact, we had scheduled a sixth interview, uh, and I had actually gone to Houston, gone to Texas for the sixth interview, and the night before we were going to meet for the sixth Mm. time, she fell, she broke her back, Mm. she went into the hospital, and she never recovered. And that was it. You talk a lot about the story of the relationship between George H.W. and Barbara Bush. Um, It was a real love story, wasn't it? I mean, she said, and I quote your book, I married the first man I kissed. When I tell this to my children, they just about throw up. (laughs) 
You know, they they did basically effectively fall in love at first sight uh, when they were in high school, when they were at a Christmas dance at Greenwich Country Club. And they had a long love story. It had its ups and downs as a marriage that goes more than seven decades might predictably have. And it changed over time. You know, at the beginning of their marriage, he was in charge. He made the decisions. He didn't even confer with her about the decision to move to Texas or the decision to run for president. But over time, she became a more and more crucial advisor and a voice he wanted to hear from on everything. In fact, you point out that there were times when um, in making decisions, she was tougher than he was. That happened in politics. That happened during the 1988 presidential campaign when he was reluctant to air an ad, an ad that seems almost innocent by today's standards, but by those standards was seen as pretty tough, an ad against Bob Dole uh, before the New Hampshire primary in 1988. He was reluctant to do it only after she said that she thought it was okay, that she thought it was fair. Did he agree to air it? And you know, you, can, you can't rerun history, but that ad was crucial in getting Dole off balance. That was important for Bush winning that New Hampshire primary. That New Hampshire primary was important in him getting the nomination that year and in becoming president. One of the greatest uh, influences, I guess, on their relationship and their life was the loss of their daughter, Robin, early on. You know, Bill, I think this was the biggest surprise for me in researching this book was how central the life and the illness and the death of Robin was for George H.W. Bush, but especially for Barbara Bush. It was really a thread that affected her in some fundamental ways. And in fact, when I did the first uh, draft of the book, I had the first chapter as the 1988 election. And after I finished it, I thought, you know, this is just wrong. That's not the defining moment for, mm. for Barbara Bush. The defining moment was when she found out that her daughter, Robin, three years old, had leukemia, a disease she had never even heard of before. And six months of really brutal treatments at Sloan Kettering in New York followed, and her daughter's death. And this made her tougher. It made her more imperious to criticism, more, you know, less willing to, to worry about whether people liked her or not. It also made her softer and more empathetic with people who were going through a rough patch through no fault of their own. Even through that, they did receive some criticism for one thing, not telling George W. Bush, who was six years old, that his sister was dying. They really uh, debated that. She described this to me in, this inter in an interview all these decades later, and tears came to her eyes, saying maybe we did the wrong thing by not telling Georgie about just how sick Robin was. Because when they came back, when she died in New York and they came back to Texas to tell George, uh, to tell George W. Bush, they went to his elementary school, he saw them, he came running up to the car and thought that Robin was in the back seat because he expected her to come back again. But you know, I asked George W. Bush in an interview whether they had made a mistake by not telling him. And he, di he didn't criticize him for it. He said it would be hard to know what to do and things worked out all right. Right. They were also criticized because the day after she died, George and Barbara went out and played golf. And she talks about that in her memoir, actually. And she talked about that uh, in one of the interviews that we had, that they had spent six months of doing nothing, but she had done nothing but been by Robin's bedside through um, difficult, painful treatments and then her death. And they went to, uh, to the suburbs where her family was living. Uh, 
and played a round of golf in the sunshine. And she met, she saw someone, a woman that she knew in the dressing room at the golf club. And she said, I wondered what she thought of me mm. for being there the day after my daughter died. Right. She was known also for being fairly sharp-tongued, right? Uh, you, I'm sure you discovered that. You're, she you're was right blunt, and yeah. you know, she said what she thought, and uh, she didn't mind putting people on the spot. The fact is, there were staffers for George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush who really dreaded seeing her for fear of what she would say to them. One speechwriter for George W. Bush told me that he was up at Kenny Bunkport working on a big speech that George W. Bush was gonna give. And they ran into Barbara Bush in the driveway. And George W. Bush said, mother, this is so-and-so, he's writing this big speech. And she said, oh good, then we'll know who to blame. <laughs> Did you ever get uh, to see her diaries? Yes, uh, to my surprise. Uh, you know, she, um, I'd ask if I could see her diaries that related to Reza Gorbachev, because her relationship with Reza Gorbachev was really interesting to me. And she said she would think about it. And at the end of the fifth interview, which turned out to be the last time I saw her, although I didn't realize that at the time, um, I said to her, I was standing up to leave, and I said two things. I said, can I have a sixth interview? And she said, yes. And I said, you know, I ask you about seeing the diaries that relate to Reza Gorbachev. Have you thought about that? And she said, yes, I've thought about it. You can see them. You can see them all. Mm. And she gave me access to her diaries, which she started keeping in 1948. And she kept keeping until 12 days before she died. In terms of comments that she made about people, one person who was not spared was Nancy Reagan. Tell us about their relationship. So, you know, I covered the, the Reagan administration uh, for Newsday. and we They knew, didn't get along. We knew that they weren't friends. We knew that, for instance, when President Reagan was shot, Barbara Bush decided not to go to the hospital on the theory that Nancy Reagan would want her closest friends around her at a moment like that. But I don't think we realized what mortal enemies they were <laughs> and how deep the resentment on both sides ran for the two of them. And all the things that in Barbara Bush's view, all the wrongs that Nancy Reagan uh, played against the Bushes from the start. For one thing, she would uh, privately refer to them as the shrubs. Mm. And what Nancy Reagan, I think, didn't realize was that Barbara Bush had like a intelligence network around Washington so that she would, Bar Nancy Reagan would say that at a dinner party one night and Barbara Bush would get two phone calls about it the next right, morning. Right. Yeah. So she was aware of some of the denigrating comments that Nancy Reagan made about her and her husband. And in one extraordinary uh, slight, uh, the, you, you remember this, this fancy White House dinner. State dinner? I it wasn't it not was. a state no. dinner because Prince, Prince Charles wasn't oh, head of state, but right. a fancy White House dinner. Uh, with Princess Di and, and Prince Charles. And the guest list that the White House social secretary sent to Mrs. Reagan, which I saw in the Reagan archives, um, had as the second name, on, the first name on the list for guests, President and Mrs. Reagan, second name, Vice President and Mrs. Bush, Nancy Reagan crossed out their names and refused to invite them. Mike Deaver, who was the Deputy White House Chief of Staff then, called Nancy Reagan and said, you can't not invite the vice president to this dinner. 
And she said, just watch me. And they were not invited. And then I remember reading that at the, toward the end of the Bush administration, Nancy Reagan said that they never invited them over to the White House, and Barbara Bush basically said, yes, we did, and I never want to talk to you again. Yes, just right after the 1992 inauguration, they had Nancy Reagan made this comment that they hadn't invited the Reagans to the White House, which was factually inaccurate. And Nancy Reagan then called Barbara Bush in Houston to say, oh, sorry, let me explain. And Barbara Bush said, I'm tired of your explaining. I don't want to ever talk to you again and essentially then hung up. And the two women never had another extended conversation. Friends that I have praised your book to have said, I'll never read it because of what Barbara Bush said about Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, you don't talk about that in the book, but I looked it up. She just told reporters one day, don't mention Eleanor Roosevelt. I, in my family, she was detested. So here's, here's what's curious about that. Which is surprising that. because both were very active first ladies. She, right? um, you know, her family was very Republican. Her family from Rye, New York, you can imagine they were a Republican family. Um, but Eleanor Roosevelt actually had, she met Eleanor Roosevelt when she was a child because her, uh, when, she, when she was young, before she was an adult, uh, because her father had become uh, publisher of McCall's. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor Roosevelt did some kind of project with McCall's, like a conference or wrote an essay, did something, came to a dinner that her parents attended, charmed them both despite their political predilections. And that Barbara Bush told me that that made her think differently about Eleanor hmm. Roosevelt. Um, so, I mean, I think politically probably pretty different, but uh, she said she was, she said that what happened at this dinner that at McCall's, that McCall's was hosting, and they were, of course, very happy to have the First Lady there, um, that people were so delighted to see Eleanor Roosevelt that they would go through the line once and shake her hand and then go and get the end of the line to go through it again, and that Eleanor Roosevelt said that was fine, didn't raise any protest, stood there until she had said hello to everyone who was there. Wow. Uh, every First Lady uh, gets a, has a, adopts a cause, uh, and I don't know when that tradition started, maybe with Eleanor Roosevelt, maybe before. What... What were Barbara Bush's two or three main focuses? So her public cause was adult illiteracy. And that was a cause she picked deliberately when George H.W. Bush decided to run for the Republican nomination in 1980. She wanted something she thought was valuable, but also not controversial. She wanted something that wasn't going to create any political problems mm -hmm. for him. But, you know, she had a private cause, too. Uh, and that was the treatment and attitudes toward people with HIV AIDS. And this was something that she taught that was much more controversial, particularly then. I think we forget how controversial AIDS was in the, in the 1980s, how much stigma was attached with people who had HIV AIDS, how President Reagan almost never mentioned AIDS, even though this was a health crisis on his watch. She quite deliberately, behind the scenes, tried to act to get more uh, help for people with AIDS and to change attitudes about people with AIDS. And that's one reason why in the first 100 days of being First Lady, she went to Grandma's house, which was a hospice mm -hmm. for infants with AIDS here in D.C., had her picture taken, hugging a baby with AIDS. That sent a big message across the country. Uh, and she wrote a famous letter to parents uh, and friends of or I forget, P. Flag. I forget yes. exactly yes. what it stands for. Uh, parents and family of... of 
uh, lesbians and gays. Yes. Yes. So an early gay activist group. Yes, right. So this was an early group, and it's at a time when it was controversial, um, that activism by gay men and lesbians was a much more controversial thing than it is these days. Um, She wrote a letter that basically said there shouldn't be discrimination against people uh, because because they're gay. And it was the first statement out of White House making this statement. And the, the mother, the, the woman who got this letter, contributed to a museum here in D.C. that tracks activism with gays. Was she pro-choice? She was pro-choice. Uh, was she publicly pro-choice? Well, she was publicly pro-choice until it became inconvenient for her husband, and then she shut her mouth. Uh, you know, one of the, maybe the most extraordinary thing I found in her diaries was not a diary entry, but it was a, a, a four-page letter she had written to herself and then folded over and tucked in the diary that she had for the 1980 campaign. It was a like a leather-bound diary uh, that she carried around during the 1980 campaign. And in it was this uh, this letter in which she said, which was titled, Thoughts about abortion. And she knew she was going to be asked about abortion rights because uh, of her husband's campaign. And in this letter, she tried to sort out what she thought about it. And she concluded, she went back, as she did on so many things, to her experience with Robin. She said, I remember when Robin was born and her soul entered, I felt her soul enter her body. And I remember there, I remember when Robin died and her soul left her body. And if your soul enters your body at the instant of your birth, then abortion isn't murder, and it should be legal. And that was a view she, in fact, held to the end of her life, although when her husband, from 1980 until 1993, she stopped talking about it. I don't know that she would want to be called a feminist, but (laughs) uh, in many ways she was. Um, She gave the famous address, commencement address at Wellesley College, where she ended by saying, who knows, somewhere out in this audience may even be someone who will one day follow in my footsteps and preside over the White House as the president's spouse, and I wish him well. What a great line. <laughs> and it got just a fantastic response. But, you know, one reason she didn't, wouldn't call herself a feminist, and I tried hard to make her acknowledge she was a feminist because I thought she really walked the walk of feminism, uh, was because she was offended by the attitude she sometimes encountered from the women's movement. And one example of that is that Wellesley College speech. You know, they announced she was going to give the commencement address, mm-hmm. and there was a petition circulated saying she wasn't an appropriate role model because her fame was all derivative from her husband. And that attitude that she didn't deserve respect on her own was one that really rankled her. And we're talking with Susan Page, author of the new book, The Matriarch, about First Lady Barbara Bush. And we're brought to you today by the great Teamsters Union, the good men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa. Check out their website at teamster.org. You may be surprised to find out they're not just about truck drivers anymore. As the Teamsters say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. Again, check it out at teamster.org. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with Susan Page. Susan Page, uh, author of the new book, The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American dynasty. Um, Susan, you talk about this. How did Barbara Bush handle the rumors about her husband's affair with Jennifer Fitzgerald, or alleged affair? So it was a source of great uh, pain for her. Um, It was something she ended up dealing with. Uh, Did they have an affair? So there's there's not a short answer to that. George Bush, Jennifer Fitzgerald, and Barbara Bush all say they did not have an, that George Bush and and Jennifer Fitzgerald did not have an affair. Um, other other people close to them say they did. Um, there's uh, sort of circumstantial evidence that is hard to understand unless they were having an affair, um, including uh, you know uh, one incident that involved James Baker. James Baker was the key person running Bush's 1980 campaign. He went to George Bush and said, I can't keep dealing with Jennifer. She's impossible. It's her or me. And Bush said, I'll think about it. And it was not until the next morning that George Bush said, okay, I'll get rid of Jennifer and you stay with the campaign. Stories like that contributed to the conclusion by some that they had an affair. But I think the fact is, I think it's impossible to say for sure. Here's what we do know for sure. Um, It wounded Barbara Bush to have to deal with these questions. And particularly in 1992, when uh, the fidelity of Bill Clinton had become an issue on the Democratic side, she had to address questions in interviews about her own husband's fidelity. What did Barbara Bush think about Donald Trump? (laughs) This will stun you. She did not like Donald Trump. 
<laughs> she didn't like him. She didn't like uh, the way he beat up her son, Jeb, in the 2016 campaign. He didn't like her atti his attitude toward women. She said she couldn't understand why a woman would vote for Donald Trump. Uh, she herself did not vote for Donald Trump, uh, but she also couldn't bring herself to vote for Hillary Clinton, so she wrote in Jeb's name in 2016. Um, you know, the, the first time I interviewed her in, in September of 2017 for the book, I said, are you still a Republican? And she said, yes, I'm still a Republican. And the last time I interviewed her uh, in February of 2018, I said, you know, in September you said you were still a Republican. Are you still a Republican? And she said, no. I don't think I am. Now, how extraordinary is that? The, the first lady, a presidential mother, two Republican presidents, a, a person who had been a face of the Republican Party for decades, she said she no longer felt that she was a Republican. And did not invite or disinvited Donald Trump from her funeral. I think that it was uh, handled in a way that was more subtle than that. Uh, there's not a tradition of presidents going to the funerals of of former first ladies, uh, Melania Trump did come. But I think everyone felt that was the right outcome for Melania Trump to come, but for President Trump not to come. And she had a countdown clock. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, she, she made no secret of her views of Donald Trump to her friends. And in the summer of 2017, a friend in Kenny Bunkport that summer gave her a Trump countdown clock. Now, I don't know if you have one of these, Bill. Do not. But it's a clock. I was tempted to go out and get one after I read the book. You can get them on the internet. They had them, in fairness, they had them for Obama. They had them for other mm -hmm. presidents, Bill George W. Bush. But it's a clock that tells you how many uh, days and minutes and seconds are left in Donald Trump's first term. And she liked this clock a lot. And in Kenny Bunkport, she put it on a little table that was between her bed and a chair she would sit in in her bedroom uh, so that it was pretty close to her. But when, when they went back to Houston at the end of the season, she took the clock with her. She put the clock on her bedside table in Houston so it would be the first thing she saw in the morning and the last thing she saw at night. And it was there until the day she died. Whoa, whoa. One thing I learned, one of many things I learned from your book, is that Donald Trump was thinking big earlier than we may have thought, that in 1988, take it from there. In 1988, Donald Trump went to Lee Atwater, who was George Bush's chief strategist, and said that he might be available to be Bush's running mate on his ticket in 1988, which when Lee Atwater came and told George Bush that, he thought that was strange. I mean, who was Donald Trump then? He right? was a New, York, a New York businessman. New York developer, yeah. right. Um, what was, how would you describe, and what did Barbara Bush say about her relationship with her son, George W. So here's the, the first one, as you point out, who actually lived long enough to, be, to see both her husband and her son mm -hmm. be president of the United States. And she and George had this, is George the the true son of Barbara or more the son of H.W.? You know, it's, it's, if you look at them, George W. Bush looks just like his father. Right. I don't know if you've seen the statues in the George W. Bush library in the courtyard of him and his father. It looks like the same man at different points in their life. But if you talk to them, George W. Bush is his mother's son. He's impulsive and sharp and funny and cutting. Uh, in a way that is very reminiscent of his mother. And it's one reason they were 
both so close and also sometimes clashed. She said, my son George has been a bad, bad boy. Right, George? I guess he was there. Maybe that was in the hospital when she said that. She was, uh, they, had a, they had a very funny relationship. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things she said to me right at the end of her life. You know, she knew she was going to die. Her health was clearly failing. She worried that George W. Bush would have the hardest time with her death because he was the one with whom she was so close. He was the only child she had who was old enough to remember Robin. Hmm. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of other first ladies and how Barbara Bush stacks up against them. Um, let's start with Laura Bush. Well, they're different. Um, you know, Barbara Bush was much more frontal than Laura Bush. You know, she was out there more. Um, she was more outspoken. Uh, Laura Bush was uh, was active as a first lady, but in a much kind of quieter, more reserved way. They had pretty different styles. Um, they were both, I think, important advisors to their husbands, um, and they both expressed great respect for the other in interviews I did uh, for the mm -hmm. book, but they're different. And Hillary as first lady? So Barbara Bush did not had lots of questions about how what Hillary Clinton was doing and she she talked to me about this but she also wrote it about it in her diary she said she thought Hillary Clinton made things too much about herself and not enough about Bill that she was doing things that was creating problems for her husband and the number one thing that Barbara Bush didn't want to do was create problems for her husband uh, she didn't want it to be about her she wanted it to be about him um, and they were never they were never close and that's one reason why even though Bill Clinton became friends with George Bush and George W. Bush and Barbara Bush after they were all out of the White House, Hillary Clinton was never really part of that equation. Part of the equation. Um, how about Michelle Obama? So also pretty different um, and, of course, a different political time. Uh, but, but Michelle Obama was also a very influential first lady. She had some causes that she pursued with great skill. Um, including the Let's Move initiative mm -hmm. and the gardening, uh, encouraging kids to eat uh, fresher food. Um, so in that way, they were alike. But Barbara Bush was, I think, a more political first lady than Michelle Obama. Barbara Bush was pretty active in Republican politics uh, in a way that I think Michelle Obama was less interested in doing in Democratic politics. Did she talk to you at all about the current first lady, Melania um, Trump? You know, she did. She had never met Melania. Um, and she, but she did write her a letter uh, right after the 2016 election, even though she was dismayed that Donald Trump had become president. She wrote Melania a very warm letter that said she, should, she would love the White House. They were wonderful people there to take care of her. She offered Melania what she called my unasked for advice. <laughs> and she said the White House could be a lonely place for a child. And maybe she should think about letting Barron bring a friend to live with him in the White House. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Uh, Hillary Clinton told me that is exactly the same advice mm. that Barbara Bush gave her when they moved into the White House with Chelsea. So I want to circle back to Barbara Bush in just a second. But first, I know you're working on your next book, which is about another powerful woman, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you want to give us a quick capsule of 
what you see in Speaker Nancy Pelosi? So, you know, they're very different, obviously, Barbara Bush and Nancy Pelosi. But they're alike in this way. They're formidable women who have been underestimated, I think, in the past. And one thing I found out since I started this uh, project on Nancy Pelosi is that they were good friends. Uh, that there are only three presidents whose pictures are in Nancy Pelosi's speaker's office, and one of them is a picture of her with the Bush clan. Um, she said that, uh, that she really liked Barbara Bush. She said she went to do an event for the Bushes in College Station uh, for the Points of Light, you know, the mm-hmm. foundation that the Bushes had, had founded, and that uh, there were like a 1,000 people there. And she said, and all but one of them was a Republican. She joked, Nancy Pelosi, I mean, obviously a very Republican crowd. And that Barbara Bush came out and met her on the steps of the library and said, I'm, I'm so disappointed. And Nancy Pelosi said, why are you disappointed? She said, Barbara Bush said, I'm sorry we don't have more demonstrators here for you. <laughs> so she got it. So she got it, yeah. Right. The key question that I came away from your book with, um, and maybe deliberately you raised this question, uh, given the influence of Barbara Bush on her husband, which we didn't really know until, at least I didn't until I read your book, could George H.W. have made it to Congress, to the U.N., to China, to Vice President, to the presidency? Could he have accomplished all of that without Barbara Bush? So, Bill, this is a question I ask almost everybody I interviewed. I interviewed 130 people for this book, um, and most of them I finished the interview by saying, could, that, asking that very question. Two people said absolutely he would have done all of that. That would be— Without her. Without her. That would be Barbara Bush said, totally he would have. And George H.W. Bush said, yes, I would have. He said it with (laughs) a a little more modesty than that, but that's basically what he said. But most of the other people I talked to, including people in their family who knew them the best, said no. She was the indispensable partner. And she is the matriarch. Uh, And that's the name of the book, Susan Page, The Matriarch, Barbara Bush, and the Making of an American Dynasty. Congratulations, Susan, and thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's Bill Press Pod. Again, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or what do you know, wherever you go to look for your favorite podcast. We're there. And we ask you to help us out in three ways. One, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Two, please tell your friends. And three, if you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating. That's the best way to help us get the word out. So thanks again to Susan Page, author of The Matriarch, Barbara Bush, and the Making of an American Dynasty. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay strong. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.